A lot of guitarists use something called the cage system to, somewhat ironically, unlock the fretboard and make it easier to get around. It's named for the five common chord shapes, C-A-G-E-D, and it really is helpful for learning the instrument. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music played in the C position, music played in the A position, and music played in the G, the E, and the D positions, too. Strong Songs is an entirely listener-supported podcast, which means it's free of the cage of corporate ownership, sponsor influence, obligatory ad reads, or anything else that would get in between me, you, and the music. If you'd like to chip in and help me make this show, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs. On this episode, it's time for another edition of Strong Solos, this time focusing on four guitar solos from four different eras of the guitar, each of which I've transcribed and each of which has taught me a ton about how the guitar works. So let's tune it up, let's plug it in, and let's get after it. The electric guitar is perhaps the musical instrument that has most defined the sound of modern American music. I say perhaps there are other important instruments as well. The piano, synthesizer, and MPC sampler come to mind. But the impact of the electric guitar is certainly outsized. As a saxophonist, I have always found the guitar fascinating. And while I've played for a long time, I taught myself to play in the early 2000s, I've only been taking guitar lessons seriously for the last year and a half. And the more I improve on the instrument, the more I've come to understand that it is an instrument of contradictions. It's one where you can play so many notes in so many different ways, but also an instrument with a lot of maddening limitations. Six strings tuned in fourths across 22 two frets is a very specific equation. Navigating the guitar fretboard is a bit like navigating a mirror maze, where each room is reflected somewhere else on the fretboard, possibly multiple other places, each time slightly different. You can play an A chord here, or here, or here, And whichever one you choose, you'll wind up with a different set of possibilities and limitations. Generations of guitarists have built and developed a whole navigational vocabulary for the guitar fretboard, and masters of the instrument have become so adept at navigating the maze that they've turned its walls and cul-de-sacs into playgrounds and jungle gyms, and at times they've even scaled its walls and climbed outside the maze in exciting new ways. And so in this episode, I want to look at four famous guitar solos with all of that in mind. Each of these solos has given me a new appreciation for both the evolution of the instrument over the course of the 20th century, and also how many of the fundamentals of a great guitar solo have stayed the same for almost 100 years due entirely to the interesting and idiosyncratic nature of the instrument itself. We'll start in the late 1930s when Charlie Christian revolutionized the entire concept of electric jazz guitar. Then we'll hop to the early 1960s when the great Wes Montgomery added his own flavor to the mix. (laughs) 
Then to the late 1960s when Jimi Hendrix imagined completely new, wildly expressive ways to move the guitar's strings. We'll end up in the mid-1970s when progressive jazz players like Larry Carlton synthesize all of those previous ideas with a previously unexplored level of harmonic complexity. Let's start in 1939 when clarinetist Benny Goodman added a fresh new voice to his sextet, a 23-year-old guitarist named Charlie Christian. That same year, they wrote and recorded Seven Come Eleven, and Christian recorded what would become one of the first essential jazz electric guitar solos. I transcribed this solo a little over a year ago, and I was immediately struck by how modern it feels considering when it was recorded. 1939 was an in-between time for jazz as the Kansas City-centric big band era of the 30s was winding down and bebop, the Harlem-centric adventurous and countercultural style of jazz that would revolutionize music in the 1940s and 50s, was still a few years away. Christian plays with a fluency and a harmonic approach that were unusual for the time period, and it was all tied to the way that he translated his approach to melody and improvisation, which was an approach strongly influenced by the horn players of the big band era that he grew up listening to, the way that he tied that to the harmonic shapes of the guitar fretboard. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So let's listen to the first phrase of his solo. So we're in the key of A-flat major with an A-A-B-A song form. That's a common type of form for songs from this era. That means there's an A section. It's eight bars long in this case. It's pretty commonly eight bars long, though sometimes the A is a little bit longer or maybe shorter. Then that A section repeats, so another eight bars. Then there's a bridge, that's the B, and then there's one more A section, and then the whole thing repeats. I talked about A-A-B-A song form and song form in general on my episode from a few years back about the Jazz Messenger's recording of Monin if you want to know more about it. So on this first A, which is what you just heard, the band is basically just playing an A-flat major and Christian's whole thing, his whole solo, is built out of a single shape. That shape is this. Now that might just sound like an A-flat major chord to you, but like I said, there are a few different ways to play a given chord on guitar. For A-flat major, there's that way that you just heard. There's also this way. Or there's this way. There's a bunch more as well. Each of those is referred to as a shape by guitar players because you have to make a certain shape with your fingers on the fretboard in order to make the chord. The important thing to understand about the guitar is that those shapes don't just apply to chords, they also apply to single note melodies. Guitar players tend to think in terms of those shapes as they move around the fretboard, and whatever shape you're in can greatly inform whatever notes you wind up playing as you improvise. So if you start with this shape, that shape lends itself to certain melodies, to certain bends and enclosures and other stylistic techniques. He starts with that shape and he goes straight up an A-flat major triad, like this. Then he goes down the A-flat blues scale, still in the exact same hand position. And then he finishes the line out by going up and then back down to the A-flat at the bottom. 
if you watch Christian play this, it would almost look like his left hand wasn't moving at all because it barely is. He's not really deviating from this one position. He's not flying all over the neck like some modern players do. He's sitting comfortably in a single place. So listen to him play it again and try to really hear his line as it moves up and back down again. Now the wild thing is, there are indeed other ways that a guitar player could play the same notes that Christian is playing and play a solo that sounds more or less the same. This shape that he's chosen, the E shape in the caged system for any of you guitarists out there, it's sort of a backbend, or at least it feels that way to me. It climbs up the chord, so it's moving up harmonically, but it moves left on the fretboard as it does that, which generally feels like moving back or moving down to me, so it's kind of like someone reaching up while bending backward to a high shelf or something. You can play the same notes while moving right on the fretboard, which feels more straightforwardly upward moving, but it involves a very different shape and some of the specific techniques that he's doing, some of the little bends and enclosures, just become a little trickier and less intuitive, which is really important when you're improvising. You can transcribe this solo and sit down and play it like an etude, which is how I learned to play it because the recording already existed, but Charlie Christian was improvising and when you're improvising, the shape that you're in on the guitar makes a huge difference because some things are just easier to do and feel more natural in a given shape. So there's this ambiguity whenever you're transcribing the guitar. Is the guitar player playing that here in this shape, or is he playing it here in this shape? And it makes the instrument such a fascinating and occasionally maddening challenge for me as a saxophonist. On an instrument like the saxophone, or really on most instruments, there's really just one way to play the majority of notes. Yes, you can occasionally use alternate fingerings, you can like blow over tones or something. There are multiple ways to play a lot of notes on the saxophone, but for the most part, if you're playing, say, an A-flat major triad, there's kind of just one way that you would play it. So it's such a trip to me that on guitar, there are two and sometimes three or even more ways to play a given melody, depending on which strings you want to be using and what shape you want to be in. And like I said, that shape that you're in, that can make a really big difference when you're improvising because your fingers will just naturally go to certain ideas and certain techniques. Incidentally, the harmony in this recording is coming from an interesting place. If you're hearing that, that is a vibraphone being played along with Christian's solo, and that vibraphone is being played, of course, by Lionel Hampton, one of the greatest vibraphone players of all time, and an essential part of the sound of the Benny Goodman sextet. So Christian's second eight bars, which you just listened to, they're a lot like the first eight bars. He plays in mostly that same shape. He plays up and down, that kind of backbendy A-flat major shape. He steps outside it for a second when he plays this. And then he returns right back to where he started, ending with a really quickly arpeggiated A-flat major chord. And then he hits the bridge and things go off. Now, 
1939, 23 years old, and he recorded that bridge. Give me a break. So Seven Come Eleven is a close cousin to Rhythm Changes, the chord progression for I've Got Rhythm that I'll talk about in the future, but is a very common chord progression in jazz. The bridge here starts down a half step on a G7 chord, so that's a G dominant chord, and then it works its way around the circle of fourth. So it creates this logical sounding cycle of chords from that G7 to C7 to F7 to B flat 7, E flat 7, and then that resolves back around to A flat major, which of course is the key of the A section. And I know that's kind of confusing that the A section is in A flat, but anyways, that's the start of the final eight bars of the song, and that's eight bars of A flat major. So it's basically one big chord progression turnaround leading back around to A flat major. So Christian's playing here knocks me out. When I transcribed this, I couldn't believe how cool it was and how logically it works on the guitar fretboard. It's almost like it plays itself. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't play itself at all, but it just so beautifully comes out of the instrument, which again is closely tied to the fact that Charlie Christian improvised this solo and that Everything he was doing was designed to give himself a really fluid and easy time moving through these chords. So let's just listen to that bridge one more time and just really pay attention to what he's playing and try to chart the course of it in your mind. that's it. It's pretty short, but man, it packs a lot of harmonic information into a short amount of time. It's so hip. It's so closely tied to the individual shapes that he's using on the fretboard. So let's go through it. For the G7 shape, that first chord, he's playing this shape. And he uses that shape to play this line. Then for C7, he uses two shapes, actually. He transitions between two of them, which makes his C7 probably the coolest chord of his bridge. He starts with this shape, which he uses to play this spiraling downward line. And then he transitions to this shape, which is right next door to it and is a very common C7 voicing. Guitar players still constantly use this one. You thumb your thumb over and play the C, and then you play those three strings in the middle, and you get this C7 voicing. He just plays right up those three notes in the middle at the end of his line, and then adds the 13 on top. Put those two shapes together, and this is what you get. Man, that's cool. That's a really, really fun one to play. Finally, on the F7, he plays this chromatic thing that feels extremely logical on the guitar. He's just sliding from fret to fret, and it's because of how the strings are laid out on the guitar that it works as well as it does. Then he ends with this 2-5 turnaround back to A-flat, and he ends right back in the shape he started in for a final eight bars that's just right in that safe, steady A-flat major shape. It's a ridiculous bridge. It's this virtuosic tour of the fretboard that works as well as it does in part because of his restraint in those first 16 bars. He's sitting in that one position on A flat, a single shape. And then for the bridge, as the chords change, he changes with them and he flies down this dexterous descent down the instrument. Melodies built out of a descending series of shapes woven together so seamlessly and played so effortlessly. It's geometric jazz at its finest. 
So let's listen back to the whole solo, and I want you to just think about that. Try to keep an ear out for it and picture it in your mind how Christian's choice of shapes and fretboard position allow his bridge lines to feel like this explosion of new ideas spiraling downward to a smooth landing back where he started at that A-flat major shape. Ears on, here we go. Time for the bridge. an incredible solo from an incredibly young virtuoso and an influential one as well. Charlie Christian might not be quite as well known to some of you as the other three guitarists that I'm talking about on this episode, but he is a very big deal in the world of jazz. Not just the world of jazz guitar, but the world of jazz more broadly. Charlie Christian died tragically young. He died in his 20s. Three of the four guitarists I'm featuring on this episode died young, actually. It's a depressing reminder of how poorly America takes care of musicians. But Charlie Christian had an outsized influence given his short recording career. His playing had an unusual amount of verticality and chromaticism for the time period that he was playing, and as a result, he had a big influence on the sound of bebop, which itself is a much more vertical and chromatic approach to improvisation. Christian's playing was recorded and distributed, and a lot of young players were listening to what he was recording. And one of those young players, an Indianapolis man working as a welder in the early 1940s and teaching himself guitar, guitar, would pick up Christian's torch and, in the 1950s and 60s, carry guitar improvisation to a whole new conceptual level. That man, of course, was Wes Montgomery. John Leslie Montgomery, known to the world as Wes Montgomery, should need no introduction even to those of you out there who don't closely follow jazz. Wes is widely held as one of the greatest jazz guitarists of all time and remains one of the most influential guitarists who ever lived. Wes had a particularly prolific 1960s, which is all the more impressive given that he died before the decade ended of a heart attack in 1968. Wes played a big role in popularizing a number of new techniques and approaches to the guitar, and also to the guitar ensemble, including the Organ Trio, which is a jazz group consisting of drums, electric guitar, and the organ, covering both chords with the organ player's hands and with the organist's feet, a bass line. You're hearing one of those organ trios right now, one of Wes's greatest organ trio albums, 1963's Boss Guitar, which features a number of famous Wes solos, including this one on the blues tune Fried Pies. Boss Guitar features Wes as band leader along with organist Melvin Ryan and the great Jimmy Cobb on drums. Cobb, longtime Strong Songs listeners may remember, played drums on Miles Davis's groundbreaking album Kind of Blue just a few years earlier, and he did some incredibly great playing with Wes in the 1960s. But yeah, what you're hearing right now is just three musicians with Melvin Ryan handling both the chords and the bass line.
So let's start at the beginning of this solo, which actually goes outside of the form of the song to do its own thing for a little while. Fried Pies is a blues, it's a blues in F, which means that each chorus is 12 bars long and they just repeat over and over. The blues is, like I said earlier, the most common chord progression in all of jazz and really in all of American music, except maybe the four chords has supplanted it now, but even then I think it'd, it'd kind of be an even fight. So I've talked a lot about the blues in the past on Strong Songs, just really quickly, 12 bars long, the first four bars are the one chord, in this case an F7 chord, since we're in the key of F. Then there's two bars of the four chord, in this case a B flat 7 chord. Then you go back to the one chord, and then there's a turnaround from five back to one. That turnaround can take on a number of different forms, two, five, one, five, four, one. Uh, but it basically goes to the five chord, then it goes back to the one, then it goes all the way back to the start and does it again. Jazz performers liked to complexify the blues progression in a lot of creative ways, but the form and the basic bones of it remain the same. So we'll get into that with this solo, but like I said, Wes's solo in Fried Pies begins with something a little bit different. It breaks from the blues form and just does what's called a pedal tone over F for 16 bars. A pedal tone, which I have also talked about before on the show, is when a single bass note repeats or pedals at the bottom of the song and everything else moves around on top of the pedal. It's a spacious and more modal approach that sounds a bit like, well, 1959's kind of blue. It clearly identifies this as a 1960s record. You just wouldn't hear a band doing something like this, stopping everything and going to this much more spacious pedal tone for 16 bars before going back into the song form. You wouldn't hear as much of that in earlier eras of jazz. So during these 16 bars, Wes is playing with a variety of different shapes. He's finding interesting sounds in all of them. And one thing that he's really emphasizing is the pentatonic scale, which I haven't mentioned yet, but which is very, very important for understanding the guitar. Pentatonic scales are the bread and butter for any guitar player, mostly because they fit so logically on the guitar fretboard. It's very easy to play pentatonics over a variety of different shapes. I've talked about the pentatonic scale a bunch of times on Strong Songs. The short version of it is, a pentatonic scale is five tones, pentatonic, compared with the seven notes that are in a quote-unquote regular scale, like a major scale or a minor scale. So if a major scale goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven octave, a major pentatonic scale removes the fourth and the seventh from that scale, and it goes one, two, three, five, six octave. It's a very different sound for reasons I don't have to explain too much. Basically, the fourth and the seventh are the two notes in the scale that have a half step between them and the scale degree next to them. And also there's a tritone in between them. So you're basically pulling the tritone out of the scale. The result is that a pentatonic scale is a smaller collection of notes with less dissonance and less structure than a seven note scale. So it's more flexible. So now let's listen to the first few bars of Wes's solo just to get it in our ears. So Wes starts here with the F minor pentatonic scale on an F blues. Very straightforward. He's ably moving around on it before he steps outside it. He hits the G, he does this augmented thing. And because he's been floating around on F minor pentatonic, when he hits that G, and especially when he hits that B, this kind of augmented chord, it sounds like a real raised eyebrow. It's a nice contrast to what he's been playing, and it fits perfectly on the guitar itself. 
Once I actually learned how to play this, I could see how he just kind of naturally went there and got this actually kind of out there sound in an intuitive way. Now listen to him play it and pay attention for that. He starts out just so nice and inside and then you'll hear it. It's like his eyebrow raises and suddenly he's moved into a very different zone. From there, he does some nice triad stacking, which is very Charlie Christian-esque. He's moving these two shapes back and forth. They're two parallel shapes right next to one another, a D minor and C minor, and it fits beautifully with the line that he constructs out of it. He wraps up this section with a nice little flutter down the F major pentatonic. Okay, so now that we've gone through it, let's listen to the entirety of that opening section, that F pedal, and just listen to how Wes is exploring these different textures and these different shapes in a very relaxed and effortless way, transitioning between pentatonic riffs, which he can move kind of quickly through, and more angular, unexpected stuff that kind of trips up the flow in between those faster pentatonic riffs. Here we go. And with that intro out of the way, it's time for some bebop. So this seems like a good moment to talk about something that makes West distinct as a player. While lots of electric guitarists use a pick to hit the strings, West was a bit unusual in that he never did. He played with his thumb. It's actually a huge part of his sound and gives his attacks that fat, rounded sound that's just so identifiably him. Though he didn't actually do it out of some stylistic preference. He was working a regular job when he was learning guitar so he could only practice late at night and he didn't want to wake up his sleeping family so he practiced with his thumb instead of a pick and just got used to it. It's not uncommon these days for guitarists, particularly jazz guitarists, to learn to play with their thumb like Wes. I still remember when I was in music school, um, a lot of the guys that I studied with would say, oh yeah, I don't play with a pick. I'd never play jazz with a pick. And it kind of blew my mind at the time because I just sort of assumed that all guitarists played with a pick all the time. Thumb playing is not really something that I've mastered yet anyways. I'm mostly focused on a pick and that's hard enough for me. So when I learned the solo or the parts of the solo that I've learned, I commit heresy and I play it with a pick and I wind up focusing just on the notes that he's playing, even though Wes often played with some pretty non-standard technique. What I notice when I'm playing along with him is how his playing really does feel like an evolution of the approach used by Charlie Christian, especially on that bridge to 7 come 11. I see a lot of similarities between the bridge to 7 come 11 and this opening blues chorus of Wes's. So let's just start with that line. He starts up on the first string and he walks down a series of different shapes, ending up eventually at the four chord, that B flat seven, using the same shape that Charlie Christian used at the start of seven come 11. He's up a step. He's in B flat, not A flat, but it's a pretty similar place to end up. Here's me playing that line nice and slow so you can just hear every note. Thank you. 
and here's Wes playing it. Listen to how he's swinging with Jimmy Cobb. I mean, his time is just so good. And the way that he walks down this line, just totally swinging. As I actually talked about in my most recent episode about The Legend of Zelda, articulation is such a huge part of any musician's sound. And while you articulate with your tongue on a wind instrument like the saxophone, which I was talking about in that Zelda episode, guitar players articulate as well. It's all just down to how they hit the string, be it with a pick or their fingers, or in Wes's case, his thumb. And I can't get over how he uses his thumb to articulate. Later, there's some real Wesisms in this solo. He does these cascading arpeggios. They fit beautifully under your fingers once you learn how to play them. Playing them with a pick gives it a very different sound, and I just can't cop what he's doing with his thumb. That's just a couple of decades of playing only with your thumb for you. Later on, there are these hammer-ons that he does, another very classic Wessism. He sequences it all over the instrument. He's such a playful player. He's really just got such a bounce to the way that he swings. And then at the start of the next chorus, it's finally time for him to break out the octaves. Now, Wes was a fantastically inventive guitarist and improviser, but he also followed a pretty consistent formula when it came to constructing each solo. He'd start with a single note line, like the ones that we already talked about, and then at some point he would transition to playing octaves. He'd spend a while playing in octaves, and then he'd usually add some more chords, some kind of chordal ideas, some double stops, that kind of thing, toward the end of the solo. Soloing in octaves, though, that's one of Wes Montgomery's great contributions to modern guitar playing, and it's something he does in almost every solo. You'll note I said it's finally time to break out the octaves, because if you go and listen to some Wes, and I hope that you do after listening to this episode, you'll really get to know that structure of his solos once you start doing it. I've always thought of Wes as treating his guitar a little bit like an ensemble, where it starts with a soloist, and then, like in a jazz big band, after the soloist comes an ensemble shout chorus. It's just that in this case, the shout chorus is being played by a big band of fingers, Wes's fingers on the fretboard. It makes sense in my head. To complete the structural formula, after the octaves, he always goes into chords and he starts playing these really nice chord melodies that are just kind of more elaborate and filled out versions of the octaves, almost like the octaves were an empty cup. Then he fills up the cup for the final part of the solo. Back to the octaves, though. Playing octaves on the guitar gives them that nice balance where your ear focuses on the top note, but you've got that bottom octave below it, which gives it a nice weight and opens the door to playing hits and figures a little bit more like a band, which can lead to some nice interactions with the drums. This is something that Wes and Jimmy Cobb did a lot, where Wes would start playing these figures and each time he does that it gives Jimmy Cobb a little moment to play off of him almost like he's playing with a big band (laughs) 
<laughs> you hear what Jimmy's doing on the drums? And he keeps coming back to that. There it is again. That's basically that. Wes smoothed out and refined a lot of the ideas that Charlie Christian had been playing with, and he adapted some of the new harmonic and ensemble arranging ideas introduced by the bebop era into something totally new. I've been listening to a lot of Wes Montgomery since I started getting serious about the guitar, and really I wish I'd been listening to him more and earlier. Just about any record he put out in the 60s is so groovy and so much fun, so I hope that you'll all check him out. But of course, Wes wasn't the only musician who spent the 1960s exploring new methods of expression on the electric guitar. Rock and roll was taken off in the 1960s, drawing from the blues guitar tradition of bent notes, overdriven amps, and other extra musical effects on the guitar to make a whole new thing and of all of those blues and rock players of the 1960s one guy stands apart the great Jimi Hendrix That's Jimi Hendrix's famous solo on the Billy Roberts tune, Hey Joe, which he recorded with the Jimi Hendrix Experience, Noel Redding on bass and Mitch Mitchell on drums for the 1967 debut, Are You Experienced? And it's a great example of so many of the expressive tricks that Hendrix used and which gave his playing such a completely different sound from any other guitar player before or since. So I've transcribed a lot of solos over the last year and a half since I started taking guitar lessons and Jimmy was one of the first ones that I've transcribed. I've transcribed a couple of his solos, and I gotta say, if you wanted to get good at guitar, like, just good at soloing on guitar, you could probably just transcribe a dozen or maybe 15 Jimmy solos and just really get inside of them, and by the time you were done doing that, you'd be really good at guitar. I really think that that's all it would take. Chords are great, scales are great, theory is great, but I don't know, just get a bunch of Jimmy solos under your fingers, and you're gonna be a really good guitar player. So this solo on Hey Joe was one of the first solos that I ever transcribed and I worked it out I kind of learned the notes and I was like okay I got it so I took it into my lesson with my teacher Scott the next week and he was like okay you're hitting the notes but you're not really playing it like him go back and really listen slow it down put on headphones listen closely to all the little stuff that he's doing and try to sound exactly like him don't just play the notes play the whole thing the way that he plays it and I did that and man I was missing so much I spent the next like two three weeks deep inside this solo, slowing it down, really trying to get inside all of the little bends, shakes, slides, and crunches that Jimmy added to each note. So let's start by listening to the solo again, and then we can get into all of that fun stuff. So 
So I bet you're already hearing a little bit more in that solo than you did the first time, just because you've got your ears a little bit more attuned to listening for vibrato, listening for bending, you know, double stops and that kind of thing. But once you get down to that granular level, there's actually a lot going on there, and it can be kind of hard to take it all in as it comes. That's why if you're going to be transcribing, I actually recommend using one of those apps that can slow down the recording and allow you to practice it a little bit slower than it was originally performed and then speed it up slowly so you can get it under your fingers. I used one of those apps to slow this recording down to about 80%, and then I started practicing the solo at that slower speed, and that was where it really started to come together. So it's way easier to hear all of the little flourishes that he's doing, all the subtle finger work that makes it sound like Jimi Hendrix, and that made it a lot easier for me to learn how to do it. Though, like I said, it was a whole process getting to where I could play this even remotely like him. I mean, I've worked on this solo a lot. I've transcribed other much more complicated solos in the meantime, and I still come back to this one and struggle to really get it to sound exactly like him because, well, I mean, no one sounds exactly like Jimi Hendrix, and this kind of thing is why. So let's just go phrase by phrase, and I'm going to keep it at 80% so that we can really hear all the little things that he's doing. Let's start with that opening phrase. So the first time that I played that, I kind of just played it like this. So, you know, a little bit out of tune on that first bend, but the problem is more stylistic. That's the exact kind of surface level thing that I was doing at first that Scott was so, you know, kind of politely unimpressed by. So there's something specific going on with every single aspect of what Jimmy is playing, starting with the attack on his note. So this solo starts on an E. The whole thing is just an E minor pentatonic scale, like a E minor blues scale, basically, really straightforward harmonically, but he doesn't just start it on any old E. He doesn't just put his finger on a high E and then pluck the string. He does what's called a rake or a rake attack, which is where you mute the strings below the one that you're going to hit, and then you scrape the pick along those strings to give your attack more bite. Here's a cleanly picked E, and here's a raked E. That's actually a pretty subtle rake. You can do big, deep rakes across all of the strings where you kind of scratch your pick across all of them before hitting the note that you want to hit. That's the kind of thing Stevie Ray Vaughan does. Jimmy does that too, though he's not doing it here. So that's one little stylistic thing that he's doing, but that's definitely not all. So he's actually bending to that E. So he's starting down on a D on the second string, and then he's bending that note up to the E, and that gives it the scooped sound that you hear. And I'm actually going to switch to my Gibson now because, I don't know, I've been playing that a lot more lately and I'm more used to it. And you don't have to play the exact guitar that someone's playing on a recording in order to transcribe it. I know Jimi Hendrix plays a Stratocaster, but you don't have to play a Strat to learn Jimi lines. You can play them on a Gibson. You could play them on an acoustic guitar, but I'm going to play them on my 335 because I've been using that for every other example on this episode. And I like how it sounds. Here's a regular E. And here it is with the scoop. Then there's his vibrato, which is the thing that I had to pay the closest attention to because I wasn't really nailing it, but it's crucial if you want to sound like Jimmy. So he doesn't just hit the D and hold it, he shakes the note, he bends up to it, and then he shakes the note, gives it some vibrato, some quick shakes to keep it moving. So this becomes this. 
Okay, so that's the first note of the solo. Listen back to him playing it at 80% speed. And now listen at full speed and really just pay attention for all of that. The rake attack, the bend, and the vibrato on the note. Okay, so we've got the first note basically sorted, or at least we know what he's doing, but there's still a lot more to go. So if you listen closely as he walks down that opening riff, try to hear if there's anything else going on above the main melodic line that he's playing. Let's go back to 80% because that makes it a little easier to hear what's going on. Listen for anything above the main melodic line. So some of you out there probably heard that it sounds like there's a higher note ringing out as he plays that main melodic line, and in fact there is. When the line starts on an E on the second string, as he starts to walk down, he hits a second E up on the first string and lets that ring as the descending line descends. So you get a kind of a two-note thing that starts as a rub when they're really close to one another, and then as the main melodic line moves downward, the space between that line and the E above it expands. That move is a mainstay for blues and rock guitar, where you get two strings ringing on the same note by bending the second string up a whole step and then holding the note three frets down on the first string. It gives you this nice rub that lets you bend around that second string and get a really cool kind of clashy dissonance between those two notes as you move in between the tuning, bending that second string. You've heard this in a million different guitar solos. That's what's going on. It's just two strings ringing simultaneously on the same note while one bends around and the other one stays put. Jimmy does this kind of thing constantly. This is called a double stop on other stringed instruments where you hit two strings at the same time. It's not quite a triad, which would have three strings. It's not quite a full chord, which on guitar typically has four strings unless you're using open strings. But Jimmy really likes to specifically treat it like a double stop where he'll have one line moving around and as he's moving around, he's sort of pressing down other strings on the frets above or below the notes that he's playing in kind of his main melody. It's a way that he adds an embellishment to the melody that he's playing, and it fits really naturally under your fingers. The first thing of Jimmy's that I ever learned was his famous introductory solo on Little Wing off of Axis Bold as Love, and that's just loaded with this kind of stuff. The whole song moves between these set positions where you basically just plant your hand and play little lines around the pentatonic scale that works in that position, but he does a lot of double stops where he presses down multiple strings while one line moves and the other string stays put, and it gives a lot of nice dissonance and this sound that's now iconic. I mean, this is just fundamental meat and potatoes guitar vocabulary stuff, but at the time, Jimmy was so innovative in the way that he approached it. So this is just a little example of that. Here on Hey Joe, he's just kind of letting that E ring as the other line descends, and it gives it a beautiful sound. It's this kind of lift that goes on an otherwise descending line because this higher note is ringing out at the same time. It's kind of crunchy and crispy. It interacts with the amp and the distortion in a nice way and gives it this distinct and distinctly Jimmy kind of a sound. So that just leaves the end of the phrase, a little walk down the E blues scale that's so much harder for me to play than you would think just looking at it in sheet music or on the piano. He does another rake bend into that first note, the B, then he does this very particular combination of hammer-ons and pull-offs, which are where you make the strings vibrate just by hammering on or pulling off 
your finger on the fretboard with your left hand, or well, my left hand, Jimmy was using his right hand because he's left-handed, but you know, your fretboard hand, you can basically make the strings vibrate by pressing down or pulling off without using the pick at all. And he doesn't use the pick on a lot of these notes, which gives it this very particular articulation. He picks the final note, that G, which feels like a strong landing on the G, and then right after he hits it, he digs in with a bunch more vibrato and shakes that note. This opening riff of the solo is the hardest part of the solo for me. I'll maybe get it right once or twice every 10 times that I play it, just because it requires such strength and confidence and such fluidity with your left hand. And on paper, it's the most basic E blues riff you could think of. It's the Jimmy of it all that makes it so distinct and cool, and what makes it so uniquely him. There's a common saying among guitar players that your tone is in your fingers, but just like Wes playing with his thumb, this is what they're talking about. Sure, his equipment, it gave his tone a distinct flavor, but the magic of this solo and the magic of Jimmy's sound, it's entirely down to how expressive his fingers were. So that's actually a quarter of the solo, let's keep going. The next phrase begins the same way with a rake attack E with that vibrato, then it walks down as the first string E rings out, he bends up to the B much the same way, and he just kind of slides between a G and an A, and then it ends on an E. So it's a development of the first riff, he's kind of doing a theme and variations thing here, and then at the end of the phrase he gives it this little hip check. This is a classic Jimmyism where he slides up, he hits the G, and goes back to the E. And when he does that, he doesn't just hit the G on its own like this. He does another double stop where he hits the G and the B on the second string above it, so you get a fatter sound. He also puts a quick vibrato shake on that G at the end, which is one of those subtle things that once I started doing it, I just started sounding a little bit more like him. So that whole phrase sounds like this. So there's a whole musical meal there. It may seem like simple blues notes on paper, but once you get into the particulars, the nitty gritty of this solo, there's so much going on, there's so much technique. And none of this is even to mention Jimmy's time feel. There's a whole podcast episode just in talking about how Jimi Hendrix grooved and felt the time. He would lay back, he would push ahead. His rhythmic conception was from another galaxy. So let's go back through the first half of the solo. I'm gonna play along at 80% and just listen for everything that's going on as I do my best to kind of match what Jimmy is doing, though of course in the end truly doing that is impossible. The second half of the solo uses a lot of the ideas that he introduced in the first half. Each one has its own particular spin and it definitely develops, but he introduces a lot of the framework for this solo with that very first riff. He never moves out of the position that he's in, sitting right there around the 12th fret. He just finds a lot of different ways to move through the same few notes. And that, I think, is what I want to conclude on for this Jimmy solo. He's basically in a single position here. He's using a single shape for this entire solo, so it's not about the notes that he's playing at all, it's about the way that he's playing them, but there's 
just as much musical complexity in what he's doing as there is in the most technical, harmonically advanced solo. Take it from me. I spent weeks learning how to kind of play this a little bit like him. And hey, speaking of technical, harmonically advanced solos, let's close out with our fourth solo, easily the most complex solo I've ever transcribed, Larry Carlton's legendary solo on Steely Dan's 1976 single, Kid Charlemagne. Larry Carlton, studio phenom of the 1970s and 80s, is a guitarist I've talked about before on Strong Songs in my episode on Joni Mitchell's Help Me. Carlton was a regular member of Mitchell's band, and his groundbreaking approach to the guitar fretboard added so much to her music. Along with Mitchell, he's also known for his work as a sideman with Steely Dan all throughout the 1970s. He even played a bit on their 1980 album Gaucho, though he wasn't on Babylon Sisters, which was the Steely Dan song that I did an episode on a few years back. Of the many great solos that he recorded with Steely Dan, his solo on Kid Charlemagne, the opening track from 1976's The Royal Scam, is probably his best known, and that's for a reason. Each individual melodic idea that he plays lands square in the middle of the magical musical triangle. It sounds great, it's interesting, and it's just a little bit unexpected. I could do an entire episode on this song, but we don't have time for that. So I will just say this is a typically killing Steely Dan studio band featuring band leaders Donald Fagan and Walter Becker on vocals and organ and rhythm guitar, respectively, along with a typically outrageous Steely Dan rhythm section, Chuck Rainey on bass, Bernard Purdy on drums, Don Grolnick on Fender Rhodes, and a gaggle of backup singers, including greats like Michael McDonald, Clyde King, and Vanetta Fields. Those guys really knew how to put together a band. The band is locked in, the harmonies are on point, the groove is standing at attention, and halfway through the recording, Larry Carlton steps to the front of the stage. So I want to treat this as a sort of culmination of all the things that we've talked about on this episode. Carlton takes Charlie Christian's logical, shape-based approach to harmony, Wes Montgomery's extended bebop vocabulary and unexpected harmonic elbow throws, and Jimi Hendrix's expressive bends and rakes, and he combines them all and places that over Steely Dan's deceptively complex chord progressions to build a solo that's just... I mean, I know music can't be perfect, but it's basically perfect... So let's just go through that a phrase at a time, and I want to highlight both how Carlton uses his flawless fretboard fluidity to craft some unusual melodic lines, and how those lines are actually largely placed within straightforward pentatonic scale shapes, and that they gain their unusual hipness because of how perfectly they're placed over the song's chord progression. Let's start with the first couple of phrases. So he begins with a raked bend right out of the gate. 
Harmonically, that's not that exciting. That's just an A minor pentatonic riff. You'd hear a million guitar players play that in an A blues, but Carlton isn't playing that over an A minor chord. It's a D minor chord, which is one of the many ways that an improviser can take advantage of how flexible pentatonic scales can be. An A minor pentatonic scale played over a D minor chord totally works. There's no wrong notes. It just gives you more interesting chord tones than if you played a D minor pentatonic scale. So what sounds one way on its own... Sounds a lot cooler when you play it over the song's chords. Same goes for the next riff, which is also built out of A minor pentatonic up the neck, but moves through a G major chord to an F major 7. And that's the Larry Carlton thing, man. That's why he's so great. He took straightforward guitar riffs with pentatonic scales like everybody else played, but he placed them so carefully and creatively over a given song's chords that you wound up getting something that sounded richer, fuller, and more interesting. lovely, right? Now listen to him play it and pay attention for that. Listen to how his riffs offset the chords that are happening around them. And let's keep going. All right, now we're cooking. This part of the song moves around a lot. This is the most technically demanding part of the solo, though really he is just moving from pentatonic shape to pentatonic shape. It's not really that different from what Charlie Christian was doing 40 years earlier. This section is in E minor. A lot of this song actually moves around between E minor, A minor, and D minor. Those are kind of the three planets around which Kid Charlemagne revolves. And this section is building up to E minor. He walks up to it with a really hip and kind of technically unusual riff it's sort of the exception that proves the rule it doesn't just feel like a standard pentatonic shape but he's focusing on a b7 chord with those leading tones leading to e minor then the harmony drops a step and carlton goes up that's another classic Carlton move. He likes to move counter to the harmony. So when the bass line is descending, a lot of the time he's ascending, which automatically just makes his line sound a little stretchy and interesting. For the next riff, he balances high up as the harmony drops again, this time to C major 7. And just a little stylistic minutia there. He plays a bend, but he starts with the bend in effect. So it's just a drop. He bends the A up to a B, but rather than doing what, say, Jimi Hendrix was doing on Hey Joe and starting on the A and bending it up a step, which would sound like this. That sounds great, but he does something different. He starts with the note bent and then just drops it. So he starts on a B and it drops down to A. It's very cool. From there, he flies into the next riff as the band cycles back around to A minor. This is the most technical part of his solo, and when you put it all together and play it a little bit more slowly, it's just immaculate.
Now listen to him do it. It's going to be a lot faster and a lot more exciting. But see if you can keep your wits about you and just take all of that in. From here, every pair of bars is like a different room that I want to just hang out in. There's this slidey thing that he does where he plays an open E then goes back and forth around the 12th fret. Then there's this almost metal shredder-esque pedal riff. And again, that riff is an A minor riff, really straightforward, but it's played over an F69 chord, so it has a really different sound. Followed immediately by a Lydian dominant bebop line that wouldn't be out of place on a West Montgomery record. Then two ascending triadic patterns following the chords of the song. That's such a guitar thing, that shape approach that I've been talking about this whole episode, where you take just basic triads, because you learn your triads all up the neck, and instead of playing them like chords, you play each note one at a time and use them to make melodies. From there, he busts out this perfect little six-note melody. It's my favorite part of the whole solo. It's got this beautiful bend. The whole thing just fits over these chords so well. And then he brings it home with this ridiculous chromatic line that seems all set up to end on the one on an A minor, except it doesn't land on the one because the band doesn't land on the one. He lands up a half step on a B flat right as the band swerves into a C7 sharp nine chord. That's so cool. I mean, the riff, the riff you expect that every guitar player knows sounds like this. Right? That's what it quote-unquote should be, but of course, it sounds so much cooler if you land up a half-step. And then throw in some light finger-tapping just for good measure. I mean, what a solo, what a solo! It combines so many things, total mastery of the fretboard, total technical mastery over the instrument, clever repurposing of chord shapes and pentatonics, blues bends, a sprinkling of bebop vocabulary, and even some finger tapping. So let's listen to it. First, my slowed down recreation, which should let you really follow the contours and colors of the solo, and then the recording itself, which is all the more impressive for how quickly he moves through each two-bar idea. Ears on. Here we go. Ha <laughs> 
All right, and now one more time, let's listen to Larry do it. have it a culmination of everything we talked about on this episode if not a culmination of the guitar itself because of course countless guitarists continue to reimagine the ideas pioneered by charlie christian west montgomery jimmy hendrix larry carlton and so many others in new and exciting ways even all these decades later the relay race continues with new runners picking up the baton or the guitar every day why don't they run relay races with guitars actually that'd be pretty cool At the end of Kid Charlemagne, Carlton takes another open guitar solo, this time the kind of peeling, joyful thing that can really only rightly take place during a triumphant fade-out at the end of a song. In his 2002 book Songbook, author Nick Hornby actually called out this outro solo, noting that at the end of Kid Charlemagne, quote, there's a guitar solo of such extraordinary and dexterous exuberance that you end up wondering where it came from and quite what it has to do with the dry ironies of the song's lyrics. And he's right, I'll admit it. The sound of Carlton's guitar is pure joy, and that doesn't really fit with Kid Charlemagne's subject matter. But in this case, at least, I gotta give it a pass. I guess it's the guitarist in me, but give me joy, give me dexterous exuberance any day of the week. And that'll do it for this look at four strong guitar solos. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll go and listen to each of these four players after you're done with it. This episode doubles as a pretty good snapshot of where I'm at in my own progress on the guitar, and I hope it inspires some of you out there to go and find a teacher and start practicing. It's taken a lot of time and work and discipline this past year and a half, but it's been so satisfying to finally slowly start to feel like I have a handle on the instrument. Thanks to my teacher, Scott Pemberton, himself an incredible guitarist with a bunch of records that you can go listen to, as well as old guitar friends Kenji Shinagawa, Woody Quinn, Dan Nervo, and Dan Epchinski for all that you've taught me about the instrument over the years. I was always learning, even if you didn't realize it. And hey, thanks as well to everyone who supports Strong Songs on Patreon and thus supports me as I continue making this show for you all. I spend most of my time in the role of teacher on this show, but it's so important for me to get to share my own journey as a student, and it's so helpful to take the things that I've learned and try to re-articulate them back for all of you. I'm only able to do that and to make this show because of all the folks who support its creation. So if you like Strong Songs and you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash strong songs or find a link for one-time donations down in the show notes. 
This episode's outro soloist is me. I decided it would be fun to record a new outro solo on the electric guitar to compare and contrast with the one that I recorded a couple of years ago and to get a sense of how I've progressed on the instrument. It was a great excuse to push myself a little bit and I had a good time working it up. So stick around for that and I'll see you in two weeks for more Strong Songs. <laughs>